to the AdFontes podcast. My name is Ansi Camel. I am the senior editor of the journal AdFontes, and I'm joined as always by my two co-hosts, Colin Chan Redimer, poetry editor at the journal AdFontes, and Reese Laverty, the managing editor at the Davenant Press. And today we are extremely excited. Um, we're extremely excited because we have our first celebrity pastor <laughs> guest on the podcast today. The uh, the Reverend Stephen Wedgworth, um, he I'm, I said that precisely because he's not a celebrity pastor in the sense that he 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 would like me to say. So he's not a celebrity pastor, but he's he's a friend of the show, founder, one of the founding members of the Davenant Institute, um, and he's the rector at Christ Church Anglican in South Bend, Indiana. It's a wonderful parish. I've had the the uh, opportunity to worship there with them. Um, lots of wonderful people out there. So um, we're very excited to have Stephen on. He He's also a regular contributor uh, to the AdFontes website. And um, that's actually the reason why we're having him on today. He's written a number of a, a series of essays um, about the relationship between the Reformed tradition and the Church of England. And we kind of wanted to talk about that, talk about what he's doing in South Bend and, and uh, just kind of pick his brain a little bit on, on the relationship between these two, these two traditions. So Stephen, thank you so much for, for uh, giving of your time to be with us where we really appreciate it. It's, I think it was millennial celebrity pastor. <laughs> oh yeah. Shoot. I forgot the millennial. I was, I was, I was planning we're, this beforehand. I was going to say he's a millennial celebrity pastor. We're losing all those hip young 40 year olds, uh, in our audience, you know, <laughs> he's younger yeah, than Colin, you, was, Colin, Colin was, Colin was so. gutted to find out that Stephen was younger than, than him. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but I was gutted when I found out Auntie was younger than me. So, you know, it comes to us all, Colin. Yeah. Sorry guys. Yeah. yeah. So, so Stephen, um, you've written this, this three parts, at least so far, a series of essays on, on Calvin and the Church of England. I was just wondering if you could start out by telling us, you know, first, I guess, kind of what the essays are about. And then second, like, why? What, what was the impetus behind you writing these essays? Why do you think they're needed? And what were you hoping to accomplish with them? Yeah, well, I'll answer those in reverse order. These these essays are gross propaganda, Perfect. Uh, self, <laughs> self-serving apologetics. <laughs> Um, to justify my own existence now as an Anglican. Um, <laughs> I, uh, That's right. Let's just focus on that cope. for a minute. Stephen is now an Anglican. Um, I never thought that would happen, but, uh, but it's happened. So, yes. Uh, right. After um, having been a, a Reformed and Presbyterian pastor for, um, oh, I don't know, 10 to 12 years, I forget now how long it's been, um, took a new position that uh, did move me into an Anglican parish. And so I had to had to wrestle with that. You know, is this something I can do uh, in good conscience? Is this a dramatic transformation or is this just sort of a small move? And then once I work through what I believe about it and, you know, in conversation with, with my new bishop and the people here, then you get to meet, uh, your new world, a weird Anglican Twitter. <laughs> uh, and, uh, their reactions, right? And, uh, and what I quickly found is that, you know, if you, you ask, um, you know, three, three Anglicans, uh, what what is Anglicanism? Like, what is that? What do you have to be to be Anglican? You'll get, you know, four or five answers from them. And, and I, which, I've been trying... Which uh, wing of Twitter is weirder, Stephen? Is it the, the weird Anglican or, or weird reformed Twitter? Um, weird Anglican is more diverse, that's for sure. <laughs> um, I would say uh, weird reformed is... 
they're a little little rougher crowd. They're ready to, to rumble <laughs> at a quicker drop of a hat. Um, but they're well, both. Stephen, that's why that's why we we wanted to have you on. So because as a Presbyterian, I got to give you a I this rough and ready time, Presbyterian but, um, sat here before yeah. us. Yeah, yeah. With an icon. Yeah. Actually, Stephen, I think that you. Yeah, your your intro, your sort of like initial remarks, I think, are really interesting because there has been this kind of like stream of you know i mean it seems like a stream who knows how many it actually is some you know you know prominent semi-prominent you know figures kind of moving out of the reformed or baptist world into into anglicanism and i i take your point about the gross propaganda you know and and sort of an apologia for what you've been trying to do to be that you know you really don't see that much distance between where you were and where you are now. Is that kind of how you see matters? It's not some dramatic transformation? Uh, yeah, I think that for, for my for my myself and my case, certainly. And if you've followed my writings online over the years, obviously you will notice I'm uh, writing a lot on Davenant. I'm, I'm writing on Richard Hooker. I'm writing on James Usher. And these are all guys who are, you know, solidly uh, Anglican, but also Reformed. Um, in fact, when I was finishing up my time in seminary, I read Anthony Milton's book on the British delegation to the Synod of Dort. Uh, and that was really um, an eye-opening book. It helped me see that there were certain categories in the early 17th century that I really hadn't heard about before. And it got me interested. And, uh, I mean, that's, that's one of those texts that got me going in a direction that helped to, um, you know, get me in contact with people like you guys, uh, people like Brad Littlejohn and others. And when we were founding the Davenant Institute, you know, the name Davenant, right? <laughs> it's because we were talking about him. We were, we were batting him around. And, uh, it's not that nobody had heard of him. I don't want to overstate the case, but he was, was certainly not a common name. He wasn't, uh, you know, everyone's talking about John Owen. That's who they're talking about. No one's talking about John Davenant in our circles. And so, so I have that in my history. So becoming Anglican is not crazy. Uh, but, um, when you get real about churches, you know, you're going to actually go to a church and operate as a minister and live in this world, then you do have to take it very seriously. And is this something I can do in good conscience? Uh, is this something that will be able to accept me? <laughs> um, I don't want to go in and be the one idiosyncratic minister, and I'm I'm the only guy that's doing what I'm doing, and everyone thinks it's really bizarre. Um, you know, I need to be able to make a, a case that that this has integrity. This is something that does have a historical precedent, and in fact, makes sense. Yeah, I mean, can you can you tell us about some of these historical precedents that you're referring to? So, um, you know, I mean, one of the things that I think people who are <clears throat> very familiar with with the Davenant Institute, though I think a lot of the Advantes listeners probably are are newer to the Davenant circles um, and are not aware of all the things we published. I mean, I'm not even aware of all the things we published. <laughs> But it's if you go the back, spotlight at the end of just, each episode, <laughs> the vice president of the Davenant Institute, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> we we publish a lot, Anzi. Do you think you've we read everything we we publish? No, but I didn't say. That. <laughs> oh, okay, you know, got it. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to be clear. I, didn't, I was worried I might be the only one. You know, maybe everybody else is just sitting around reading our books all the time. Um, it, you know, you go back far enough in the Reformation. <clears throat> We tend to think of Lutherans, Anglicans, you know, the Presbyterians, the Reformed, the Methodists, you know, on and on and on, the Baptists, the Anabaptists. These people are all so much 
so different from one another, right? And this is the this is the classic Roman Catholic critique of Protestantism, uh, which I was very, you know, it, it had a big effect on me the first time I had encountered it, which is that Rome is one thing, and all the Roman churches are one thing. And I actually heard a, a pastor recently sort of, this propaganda is so effective that it's like in the mouths of Protestant pastors. And because the, the Roman Catholics say, well, we're one thing. But you guys just have so many different churches, right? The church just, once you leave Rome, it just keeps fragmenting and fragmenting and fragmenting. And from the beginning, Davenant said, you go back far enough. And these, you know, while these differences might appear big now, um, they're not actually as big as we might think they are. And particularly theoretically and historically, uh, you know, you go back to the the reformational documents and they're pretty close together. So do you have sort of examples of, of historical figures you're thinking of who've who've made similar journeys or, or whatever? Um, well, you know, people who've made similar journeys, I'll have to think about that a little bit. But the, the question about examples of why that I might feel that this is a challenge and then what I'm trying to demonstrate, you know, the first question, are Anglicans uh, properly reformed? Can you call them reformed? I think that's an issue. And in a certain right. cer- certain section of North American Reformed churches. I mean, there's there's a collection of them called NAPARC, North American Presbyterian Reformed Churches. Um, they would define reformed along certain boundary lines, and I think they would probably exclude Anglicans and they would exclude Reformed Baptists. So for them, reformed is is one thing. Um, and then on the flip side, there are you know many many Anglicans who would say, well, there are a lot of Anglicans who who walk the line of whether they want to be Protestant or not. You know, they're either Catholic light or they're some alternative track that flies above all the all the distinctions. Right? You you get that. Um, but then you get Anglicans who say, well, we're Protestants, but we have always been our own thing. And they'll say you had the Lutherans, you had the Reformed, or they might just say Calvinists instead of Reformed. And then you had us, the Anglicans, as if that's those are comparable. You know, those are three alternative tracks you can mm-hmm. take. So what I'm saying is, well, no, I, I think Anglicans, at least uh, at least historically, were one expression of the Reformed church churches, the, the movement of churches that called themselves Reformed. Um, Anglicanism was one expression of that. Um, particularly associated with England. Um, and you had Reformed churches in other places, um, Scotland, Netherlands. You had um, all the various Swiss cantons. You had Reformed Church of Hungary, Reformed Church of Transylvania. People forget about those guys. Shout out to Vlad, but uh, they were mm-hmm. there. <laughs> um, and Victor Orban, you know, I mean, for people who pay attention to like scuttlebutt in conservative circles or whatever, he's yeah, actually he's Reformed. Yeah, Baptist Catholic, He's yeah. Baptist? What? I, think he's reformed. I don't know. No, I he's not Baptist. Reformed Church of Hungary, right? <laughs> nice try Sorry. flexing Reese. Rod, and then Rod Dreher <laughs> would like <laughs> nice to try Reese. He's Baptist, so should, should have should have seen that. <laughs> Oh, sorry. I was just saying, so the main thing I'm first trying to establish is that there is such a thing as uh, Anglicanism that is reformed, that, that I'm not making that up, that that makes sense, and that um, someone who um, shared all of my principles from, you know, a few years ago, being a fan of Calvin, but also Bootser, Bullinger, Davenant, these guys, uh, Ursinus, um, this is this is coherent. This is not some brand new transformation. This makes sense. And then you can spill over from that principles of worship. You know, can I use a BCP worship? Is that all right? Um, can um, 
can I have a bishop? Is that okay? You know, these sorts of questions. Or do that, uh, does that really require a new theology? So, so that's the first burden I'm trying to take on. And Stephen, you, you had this great quote um, from your most recent essay. You, you have a series of essays called Calvin on the Church of England. And for listeners, we'll have this series in the show notes. You had this great quote that I actually, it, it put um, the matter in a way that I'd, I'd sort of like thought inchoately, but, but had never really been able to put into words. And you said it this way, though it might be too sweeping a summary, we could say that Calvin is Puritan in personal tastes and eventual goals, but that he is Anglican in basic principles and ecclesiastical polity. Would you mind just unpacking that for us? Because that seems to me to be kind of one of the things that you're talking about here, where you have this love of Calvin going back, you know, a decade or more, and then you have this admiration for Davenant and, and Butzer and Bullinger and, you know, the various, um, you know, kind of various figures across the spectrum. Um, I noticed that, you, you, you know, you, you don't cite Knox <laughs> as like, an, you know, and so I wonder if there might be some sort of kind of difference that you see between Knox and Calvin uh, but w- would you just talk about, you know, how you see Calvin's relationship to the Church of England and um, in what senses you think the Church of England, particularly in the first few centuries, was this expression of reformed Protestantism? What about it um, united it to, to what's going on on the continent? Yeah, yeah, great question. So um, there are going to be some listeners right away who are going to protest at the use of these names. You know, this is not the preferred nomenclature, dude. So, but we're just going to talk the way people talk, okay? So, um, you know, Anglican, Puritan, just roll with us, okay? Um, Yes, technically speaking. It's a bit anachronistic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, technically speaking, um, you know, anyone who's a member of the established Church of England at a certain time is Anglican. Uh, we got it, but I'm <laughs> just using shorthand. So, um, for what I mean when Calvin shares Puritan goals and preferences, you know, he doesn't want nearly as elaborate of a liturgy. He would prefer it simplified, slimmed down, um, maybe even some more variation to it than than what is in the BCP. And um, he would like to move beyond probably um, most of the church calendar. Uh, You know, he does celebrate Christmas and Easter, a few other days, but they're not that important to him. Um, You know, he can kind of take them or leave them, and uh, he certainly doesn't want to be tied into, um, you know, all of the minor feast days. He's not going to do Lent, anything like that. So so in that sense, he's Puritan. He'd get past all of that, um, and um, he, he... his preferred church government, when he gets to make it, you know, when, like, when he's in charge, he sets up something like what the Dutch Reformed still have to this day, where you have a minister and then you have lay people who serve as elders on a cycle. They kind of come and go. Um, but there's not a bishop, really, in his world. So um, in that sense, you can say that's very Puritan. Um, but... What I found uh, through reading Calvin, uh, it comes out in his institutes and his commentaries and especially in these letters, is that he doesn't call for this stuff um, immediately, absolutely. Uh, it's not a sin if you don't go all the way to where he goes. Uh, you know, it's it's not idol idolatry necessarily in the way that some of the later Puritan arguments are going to come out. And... 
um, he seemed to really want to work with these bishops. You know, he writes to Cranmer and he says, you're the man. You know, we should have a pan-Protestant council, ecumenical council, and you got to be the guy to lead it. You know, you've got to be the head of that council. Can you imagine? Um, wow. Yeah. Be, oh, man. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he writes letters. So why, why, why didn't this work out? Oh, well, why didn't it work out? A million questions. Because us Protestants can't agree on anything, Colin. That's why. Because <laughs> um, there were already 30,000 denominations. <laughs> yeah. Because we was, had left the one true church and the spirit wasn't with us. Yeah. It was the Eucharist. It was the inability to reconcile Reformed and Lutheran views of the Eucharist. And so that's why, because they wanted the Lutherans, you know. If it was just, hey, let's just do the, 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 the reform guys, then they probably could have done that. If they would have started with that goal, and, you know, maybe, maybe that would have been a better idea. But they really wanted the Lutherans, too. And they kept waiting and waiting and waiting for the right time, and it never came. So, And there's no emperor um, to call it, either. Mm. You know, no, no good godly that's Christian right. prince ruling everybody. And the Pope wouldn't King, have come King anyway. James, Amen, brother. King James was gonna King James was gonna be the guy. He he wanted the Senate of Dort to be the building block for that. And uh, was disappointed that it kind of got limited to just one particular set of issues. Yeah. <clears throat> Do you hear that, Joe Biden? We are we are waiting for the Emperor to call <laughs> He's us. He's a papist, my friend. To council. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, but he's, he's the emperor we got. <laughs> the spirit can move once the council's on, Reese. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you mentioned Knox. Yeah, so so Knox the... comes up in these conversations, mm-hmm. and he you think he's Calvin's buddy, right? You would assume they're on the same page, and in some senses that's true. But then you start to see Calvin distancing himself from Knox, too. And he says, well, you should moderate it, Knox. You should tone down a little. And we, we can't get, you know, we can't do this all the way. And and then after the political controversies, he's really trying to put some distance. He's writing apologetic letters to uh, Cecil, the um, I think he's a duke of something or another, uh, who's closely associated with Elizabeth. And he's saying, I didn't mean it like that. You know, you got me all wrong. <laughs> trying to get back into uh, her favor. It never does. So, um, yeah, so there's some daylight between Knox and Calvin that's important. Yeah, so that's helpful. So so I guess, um, you know, at the 30,000 feet view, you see that Calvin's sort of personal preferences um, liturgically, um, in particular, uh, run in a more Puritan-ish, what would become the kind of Puritan direction, simplified liturgy, fewer ceremonies, those sorts of things, but that at the level of, of church polity and ecclesiastical principle, he thinks that the kind of settlement that the Church of England, you know, um, um, would eventually arrive at is, is, is appropriate, right? Where you have national churches sort of determining these things for themselves, um, and that as long as there's no, you know, idolatry, you're sort of, you know, obliged to uh, submit to to, to to the rule of your bishop and your and your magistrate. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, he definitely talks about authority being important. Um, he says that, you know, if you have the authority and you can make the changes, then you should make these changes. But if you are not the one in authority, then you should wait and let the authority person make the changes. 
That's a big, big deal. Um, and he even allows for the church to institute ceremonies. And so I think that's where you see him more Anglican on principle. Um, in one of his uh, writings in the Institutes, he actually says kneeling should essentially be treated as like divine law, you know, kneeling in the service, because it's so closely connected to the things that the scriptures call for, you know, humility, showing honor, reverence. And so he says, if the church says kneeling is the way you do that, then you should do that. <laughs> um, even though there, there's not a positive command, thou must kneel in the scriptures, um, the church can interpret those ideas of reverence, solemnity, humility, and they can prescribe something like kneeling, at which point you, you as a Christian are bound to obey. Which, that, that's mm. interesting because, you know, you'll, you'll have what seem like fairly flat commands, I think, like in the Psalms to kneel in worship. Um, Come, let's kneel before the Lord. I'll make a Psalm 100. Um, that feels like it's it's in the same category that Calvin would put. We talked about this a while ago for some reason. Same category that Calvin would put like musical instruments in, but it's something that's part of the old covenant dispensation, and therefore, you know, that's why he doesn't like musical instruments because therefore when we're immature and now we've matured, we don't need those aids. We can just sing with our voices. Like, what? It's just a fairly specific question. You might not have an answer. Why does kneeling get, you know, a special pass into new covenant positive divine law, whereas, like, instruments didn't? Because the New yeah, Testament well, offers a posture, I would assume, right, Stephen? So it's a great question. Um, and it, it's true that Calvin would not say, since Psalm 95 says, let us kneel before the Lord. Therefore, we must kneel before the Lord. He doesn't make that kind of argument. You're right. He would he would say, well, the Psalms are giving us you know something appropriate for that time. Um, and I don't think there's a New Testament command to kneel in worship. Now, you know, you have examples in the apocalypse where the people are falling down. So you could point to that. But I don't know that there's a direct command. But what he would say is that kneeling is just an obvious cultural expression of humility, reverence. Uh, and so if if the authorities of a certain area determine that that's the custom, um, then they have the right to make a rule. And it's similar to the way he deals with head coverings. Um, if you read him on 1 Corinthians 11, um, technically, if you get really down to it, you don't have to do head coverings at all times and all places. It's not like that. But it's because it was a custom that signified the proper relationship between man and woman, um, and it was uh, appropriate to show social harmony. So um, so therefore, it's a custom, and you should do it. Uh, and the people know it, they recognize it, it makes sense. So his argument's a little more nuanced than, than just a Bible reference. Um, yeah, the church has the right to prescribe a custom. Um. So I've, I found that your pieces on Calvin and the Church of England really, really, really enlightening. And they seem to me, from what I know, to, as we've kind of alluded to, be much the same kind of thing as like what Richard Hooker argues oddly against Presbyterians in the laws, which is, you know, there's, um, if there's precedent in a place, then, you know, go, go softly accept those things that are extant. Do any of us really believe in our own, you know, 
form of church government enough to put our li- lives on the line for it and say that um, this is 100% the form of church government that, that God has ordained. I think we'll say, I'll make the case for episcopacy, but I'm not going to you know, put it out there as something as fundamental as, say, justification by faith alone. Um, and so they seem to be kind of of a mind, like you said, Calvin has a kind of Anglican disposition when it comes to church polity. Um, now, in the Reformation... I can think about what that looks like. It means, as we've said, be gentle and slow with, you know, the the kind of reforms you try and put in. In the pieces you outline, Calvin put some things above others, like prayers for the dead. Um, or is that a pressing issue? You really need to deal with that. Um, a couple of other things, and then others he's clearly less bothered about. And you say, if he was going to make an argument to the king about episcopacy, here's the time to do it, and he doesn't do it. Um, now, most of us now, so this is a long preamble to the question I'll ask, most of us now in the West are probably not in positions where we are in Protestant contexts where there's a whole lot of kind of, you know, hocus pocus or extras being kind of um, encrusted onto our church services. It's probably actually the opposite. <laughs> I don't know. We do, we do have some fog machines. Well, this is what I'm going to say. That it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. Light shows, light shows. There's either a lot missing the or there's a lot of low day. church mm. stuff that's been added on. So I, I have some thoughts about this, you know, someone in a low church context who might, if I got to redraw things from the ground up, be a, have a slightly higher, you know, sense of, of what a church service should be like. Um, but Stephen, how do you think those kind of principles that Calvin and Hooker have when it comes to their pace of church reform kind of are still relevant and helpful for people in what a very different Protestant context now? Like if I was, you know, going going on mission to a Roman Catholic country, it might be a bit more of a direct kind of, you know, transplant from the Reformation era to now, but that's not the situation I'm in um, or that many of our listeners are probably in. So do you have any thoughts on what that looks like, how it's helpful these days? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, you're right that a lot of us are are living in a totally different set of issues. Um, however, I think you'll you'll see parallels in the problem. So Colin joked about the smoke machine, but what is it that's ultimately going on in the reformed criticism of uh, you know priestcraft and sacerdotalism? Well, one one element is the errant doctrine. You know, this is implying some sort of two-tier Christianity, um, you know, they mediate salvation to us. Um, but also in that is the idea that the clergy or, or the professional church people, they do the worship. You know, they do the work. And you, the lay people, are just sort of out there observing it. <laughs> um, you know, in the most extreme fashion, right, the medieval Catholics are not actually taking the Lord's Supper. Um, they're doing ocular communion you know which is where you just look at it <laughs> uh, you know you you commune through your adoration as you view the host and you could you could see a way in which that might map on to certain big box modern evangelical churches right um, the the they may not call themselves clergy but they're certainly professional the people that are hired to be up there they do all the work and you and the pew yeah, the worship team does yeah. the worship and you kind of like watch or whatever. Yeah. 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 And you know, not everybody is this extreme, but I certainly have run into it where people just, they just kind of stroll in partway through the service. They still get their coffee in their hand and you know, they hear the sermon and then maybe they leave a little early too, right? Like it's not, they don't view themselves as an active part of the service. 
And so you could make a parallel there, um, and you would apply the principles uh, that Calvin, Hooker, and others are using. Other things they talk about are simplicity. Uh, even even classical Anglicans, they, they have more things going on perhaps than Calvin's Geneva, but they still argue that it needs to be fairly simple. Um, you know, the Book of Common Prayer, 1662, once you get past the fact that I'm wearing a white robe um, and that, you know, we have a little more decoration in the sanctuary, the service is not really that complicated. You know, it's it's got a couple of different motions. It stays the same every week. Um, the, you know, you figure it out pretty quickly. And uh, if you've been at our church for a couple of months, you may not even really have to read the words anymore. Like, you just kind of know what's coming. Um, and so it's pretty simple. So I think that's a principle. You don't want it to be too complicated, too complex. Uh, it needs to be as universally accessible as possible. And so, again, you might think of Anglicanism as really foreign, but but it wasn't. <laughs> you know, the whole point is it's common prayer. <laughs> this is in English. Uh, this is using things we know about. And so similar principles. You don't want your service to be too hard. You don't want it to seem like it's some really strange foreign thing. Uh, and you want it to be mm -hmm. such that the people can participate. Mm -hmm. It's really helpful. Yeah, yeah I mean... so. Oh, Colin, you were going to say something? Yeah, <clears throat> no, I, I'm, I'm, I'll switch topics. So go ahead if you've got more inquiries on. Well, on I was going to, I was actually going to also switch topics. So <laughs> well, why don't I was going to okay, affirm right. and say so thank Stephen, you for what um, Stephen's just said. That's that's really helpful. Has, has answered my question. I would. Okay, well, that's what Reese would have done if I hadn't cut him off. So now <laughs> very, we're going to. You know, I edit the audio on yeah. C. Remember. All right, that. so Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> so Stephen. Um, that, that's yeah, as Reese said, that's an extremely helpful answer. I think um, it, it, I want to take us back to one of the first things you said when, when I was asking you about this this series that you wrote, and you said that as you were considering making the switch to Anglicanism, there were kind of two, two separate kinds of issues. The first was the issue of historical precedent. Like, is the is the sort of movement that you're making uh, does it have precedent? Does it therefore have a certain kind of integrity, you know, to the tradition that you're moving into and 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 even um, to the tradition you're moving out of? Um, um, but then there was a second a second issue. You said, you know, um, as a pastor, um, you have to sort of wonder or take into account, perhaps is a better way of saying it, the the issues on the ground. Right. I mean, um, will I be able to fit in even if there's historical precedent, um, you know, is this going to be accepted by people on the ground? Because you don't want to be a minister, you know, who's provoking sort of hostility where, wherever you go or whatever. Can't but cause I guess, scandal. I mean, it's not good to cause right, scandal. You don't want to cause scandal. But I, so my, my question is kind of, you know, I, I've talked a little bit with, um, with Sam Bray, who's a friend of the show and, uh, um, used to be, um, oh, I forget what the Anglicans call him. See, this is where my Presbyterianism comes out, but you know, was helping to run the parish before it was you part of the vestry. Call. Sure, right? whatever. The, the vestry is the, the room yes. where the vestments yeah, he... are kept. Both, you're right. Yeah, this, okay. is the, this is what they See, call it. This is what happens when Anglicans start talking about these things. They just like, <laughs> anyway. Um, but no, but yeah. my point, Stephen, rather was to say that like you guys are, uh, Christ Church South Bend is, is, is kind of pioneering the use of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer in worship, which is something that Sam Bray helped, helped to edit. And so I guess I just kind of wonder, like, you know, thinking about how, as a minister, you fit in on the ground and, and, and so on. What do you see the kind of role that you're playing and the role that Christchurch South Bend is playing? What are you guys, like, trying to do 
with your kind of distinctive, you know, you're not using the 2019 ACNA Book of Common Prayer, you're using the 1662. Um, and a lot of these choices, you know, because I've been speaking with you and, and with Sam and with um, others, you know, have been very intentional. So I guess what, what are you trying to do um, on the ground and, and how do you see yourself fitting into that? that project what's your plan for becoming the next great uh evangelical megachurch pastor <laughs> well right. what's Try. yeah that, i like that Not second this. question but i think the right answer the right answer is you know i just i go down to the neighborhood pub with my best friend and we let the word do the work right <laughs> yeah um <laughs> exactly get a puka he's, shell he's necklace a Lutheran, by the sounds of it that that description <laughs> Yeah. So um, the the church here in the 1662 um, International Edition project. This is a great question. Um, to be totally totally candid, you know, I'm I'm a newcomer. I'm hopping on this train that's already rolling. Um, I had to get up to speed on this pretty quickly as I was taking on this position because, um, like I say, you decide. Well, can you become Anglican? That's one question. But then you say, well. Can I be this kind of Anglican in this place at this time? That that's a new question. Mm-hmm. And I'll be honest, I was not um, I was not educated or informed about all of the subcultures and the different um, twists and turns of North American um, Anglicanism. I mean, after all, they didn't even mm-hmm. call themselves Anglican until a few years ago. They were they were the Episcopal Church right. for all those years. Um, and funny enough, like mm-hmm. t- even even today, if people say, "Oh, you know, what church are you at?" and I say, "I'm at an Anglican church," and I was I would say like two out of three people say, "Huh? What what's that? What, what's an Anglican?" Like they don't yeah, even we just know what that church. means still. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, so what we're doing, I'll give a real short explanation and then we can talk about more. We are sort of reaching backwards before the American um, transition to Episcopal. We're going back before that happened to the what would have been the main classic Book of Common Prayer that was finalized in 1662. That's after uh, the end of the English Civil War. The king is brought back, the monarchy. But but it became the one that really stuck globally, you know, first in England, but then as the empire went, it went too. Um, and if you had to pick one, it, it's the authoritative one. It's, you know, it's the King James Version of prayer books. <laughs> um and so we decided, uh, Sam and others, they said, well, we want to bring that back and we want to put that into use in North America. So, so that's the first step. And there are reasons for that beyond just history. Um, I would argue that it is the most compatible with the Reformed Reformation doctrine and outlook that I've been describing. Um, the others make changes mm-hmm. and they're putting you on a trajectory to being moved in a different direction. Um, and there, there are two main directions that they move. You have the, the Catholicizing, high church, to Anglo-Catholic, and yeah, I know, they'll fight me about those names, but again, being simple, there, there's the Catholicizing trajectory. Where you're, you know, you're adding, uh, oh, we have seven sacraments. We really do. We promise. And, um, you're, you're starting to put new meanings to what some of those sacraments do. Uh, that's happening. Um, but then you also have your liberalization. And those two movements are not the same movements. A lot of times they're bitter enemies, but they, they happened at the same time. Mm. And in the prayer mm. books, you can see both elements. 
So, you know, we're getting a little more baptismal regeneration at the same time that we're talking less and less about sin. So you, wow, you that's really weird. Do you have a theory about why that like twin movement takes place? Like, what's the relation between these things? Oh man, yeah. Because I, mean, I would, I mean, the, I, in my mind, it would have been easy to just be like, oh, yeah, it's the same thing, you know, Anglo Catholicism and liberalism—they're a bunch of, you know, hand in glove. <laughs> yeah, um, I think some of it is just history, right? Things happen, and so we're—it's in the air. Like, you know, if you talk to us, we'll we'll be saying things that we don't even think about. But oh, okay, that reflects a certain commitment to industrialized capitalism and liberalism. Even if you and I would would say that we weren't really that into those things, it, you know, that's still just in the air. But I also think, especially with someone like John Henry Newman, uh, he he's sort of the the big paradigm of an Anglo-Catholic character. He's also a romantic. Right. He's a romantic. He's an idealist. Um, he's progressive in the technical philosophical term. Um, you know, he sees yep. history unfolding in a certain direction. Well, you know, liberals are all those things. <laughs> you know, they're romantic. They're idealistic. They're progressive. Looks like a liberal. <laughs> smells like a liberal. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's a very common. I mean, I I remember a, a priest, you know, that I knew, a Catholic priest, said that that Newman is the gate between liberalism and orthodoxy, and people move uh, can move in either direction when <laughs> mm-hmm. you know once they get to Newman, they can move in either direction using Newman. And I was struck by this. You know, I, I had a conversation once with a faculty. Sorry, was this an Anglican or a Roman Catholic priest? You'd... Roman Catholic. Okay, yeah. And I had a conversation with a, a liberal Catholic faculty member at a at a divinity school once, where where I was arguing about interpretation of Newman, and uh, and he said he said to me he looked at me and he said, well, you know, Newman says truth changes, and which is not what <laughs> Newman says, but I mean that's the kind of liberal you know moves to Stephen's point, right? That's it's the not sort of hard to make him kind say of, that though. Progressive development, what? It's not hard to make him say that. It's, right, you know, you, progressive yeah. development of history and, and all the rest, but that's the kind of liberalizing direction. So that's that's a striking way of putting it, Stephen, so I appreciate that. Thanks. That's mm-hmm. good. So, yeah, so, I mean, my, my this uh, we're, we're getting close to... Oh, go ahead, if you've got a final thought on this. I have a, I have a final question for you. Oh, so I was just going to wrap up that idea of what we're doing. So we're trying to re-implement that 1662 prayer book but we also want to show that that is still happily Anglican. You know, we're not reaching back to some book that was dis, uh, you know, was discarded. You know, they used it for a few years, but got rid of it. Um, you know, but we like it, so we're going to bring it back. Like we do like this book, but we also had argued this makes sense. You know, this is a happily Anglican kind of thing. It's representative of a, if you count all the noses over history, you know, a majority position. Um, and again, it, it's it's not our own weird concoction. It's something that makes sense. Hmm. Um, so the, I, I guess my final thought was to, to circle us back, and maybe we'll keep going after this, but uh, we're getting close to the time. I'm, we're thinking about historical precedents and are there people who've done this before? And so <clears throat> I came up with two thoughts, uh, one that's more historical and one that's actually quite contemporary. And I thought I'd toss them at you and see if you think that this is like the right track to be thinking about what, what you're dealing with. So one is actually <clears throat> friend of the Institute, Peter Martyr Vermigli. <laughs> Uh, he's you know, written for us. He's written yes, for us. in fact, we, I think he's ex- exclusively written for us in English. Um, 
you know, he, he's this Italian reformer who, who really does when he leaves Rome, uh, you know, and I mean, is chased out of Rome, goes and like spends some time in the reformed church, spends some time in the Anglican church, doesn't have a self-understanding of, of his movement between those two worlds as being sort of like earth shattering. Um, and then the second one, I don't know if people know this, Reese and our English listeners probably do, so shout out to the UK, but the Queen, you know, you mentioned Scotland, or you mentioned the Scottish Presbyterians, uh, you know, when she's in, in England, uh, she's an Anglican, <clears throat> and then when they go up to Balmoral, their, their home in Scotland, technically, uh, she is a Presbyterian, and she, right. you know, she's attends... She's the, the Church of Scotland. She's the head of the Church of Scotland. The... She used to lead the the General Assembly convocation, like the opening convocation of the. That's right, and she takes the Eucharist with them and worships with them. Uh, So, you know, do these two individuals shed some light? Do do you think that's kind of an accurate way of trying to conceptualize this, or or is this sort of off base or out of bounds for some reason? (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean it. It is. It's pretty pretty interesting. So historically, very easy. Vermigli is actually taken to England. He's teaching there. He's working with Cranmer. Uh, So is Bootser. Um, Bootser goes to England, so those are two guys really clearly. Um, and then you have a character like Bishop John Hooper. Uh, you know, he, he's initially kind of nonconformist, Puritan. He doesn't want to do some of this stuff. And he's married into the Bullinger family, by the way. His wife is either Bullinger's daughter or niece. Um, but then he eventually comes around. He says, "Okay, fine. I'll I'll put on the hat. I'll wear the outfit. You know, that's okay." And then he goes on to serve as a bishop. You know, and does his does his job. <laughs> so you had a lot of characters at the time of the Reformation who could move back and forth between those, no problem. Um, yeah, yeah. So that really works, and I think is not not hard at all. Yeah, modern era a little trickier, but the Queen's a good one. Um, but also think of like a J.I. Packer. Um, you know, if you didn't, if you didn't know him personally, just reading his books, you're like, oh, this is on Banner of Truth. He's, he's talking about John Owen. I mean, he must be a Presbyterian, right? (laughs) But no, Mm. he's an Anglican and he remains that way until he dies. Um, and that was important to him. And you find other characters too. Maybe they're not as famous, but, um, there, there are, um, Anglican bishops and writers who were, were totally happily reformed, Calvinistic, even sympathetic to Banner of Truth kind of style stuff. Um, even, you know, to the present day. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes me, I mean, now that you're thinking about J.I. Packer, <clears throat> it makes me think about all the different, you know, there's, there's something about the faith of the people. Uh, you know, that you see, at least in the American church, I'm assuming this is the case, Reese, over there as well. You can correct me if I'm wrong, where, you know, you get a guy like N.T. Wright or, or various reformed thinkers, and it's just, you know, when they're, when they're, you know, vibrating with orthodoxy, they're, they're just sort of accepted by the people. I mean, there are, there are um, plenty of people who wouldn't feel N.T. Wright is vibrating with orthodoxy, just to... <laughs> <laughs> Not to say it wanna, depends on the it depends yeah. on the issue, Reese. It depends vibing. on the issue. He's uh, on the resurrection. Vibing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Well, it's, it's, yeah. Uh, Packers. <laughs> we do have to kind of move towards wrapping up. But Packers an, an interesting one in the kind of there are sort of um, social dynamics. That meant he left the UK because Anglicanism here was dominated by pe- 
posh guys who went to public school and he went to grammar school, so was never going to be accepted into the inner rings of uh, of evangelical Anglicanism. Which for for our Americans, all the words that he's just said mean yeah. So public means private. Public school is posh and prepares you for public life and running the world. And he's using posh as an insult. Yes, yes, So, but also, you know, that Anglicanism here both kind of then when Packer was younger and now had ceased to be kind of in any way in touch with this Reformation roots that it's no surprise that Packer led this reform this uh, revival of interest in the Puritans because um the Church of England was totally dominated by liberalism and Anglo-Catholicism and they had gone hand in glove totally by the mid 20th century and there was just no real sense of ownership of and still to no great degree is there any ownership of the kinds of Reformation reformed heritage of Anglicanism we've been talking about. So Packer is sort of led to the Puritans, I guess, out of a lack of anywhere else to go on one level. Um, yeah, just as a... Sorry. You you summoned a hobby, you summoned a hobby no, horse. It's a, it's a major... <laughs> I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's a major problem. And, and that's, I think, what makes... That's part of why I'm so excited. You know, when I found out that, that Stephen was making this move, I was very excited because I think that this is a voice that's lacking um, within Anglicanism. Um, and it's one thing for like the Davenant Institute to be beating this drum constantly, like Richard Hooker is reformed, John Davenant is reformed, all of these guys, you know, they're part of the broader reformed heritage. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, we're a non-ecclesial institution. We have different sets of ecclesial affiliations between all of us. Sometimes they're shifting. And so I think it's just fantastic that Stephen, you know, Money where the mouth is, you know, going to do it and, 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 uh, and, um, you know, kind of represent this thing that we've all been, we've all been talking about for, for, for years. Um, so with that, Stephen, thanks again for, for being here. Let's, let's shift to what we're reading. Um, so actually, Stephen, I guess I don't know why I said thanks for being here because we're not wrapping up yet. I'm going to put you on the hot seat. What have you been reading? Well, it won't surprise you. I've been reading all these books about Anglicans and <laughs> trying to figure this out. Um, <laughs> I suppose that makes sense. So, so some I definitely have to recommend. I finished up recently um, Stephen Hampton's book, Grace and Conformity. Um, really important book. And he'd, he'd be another example, by the way, of a contemporary Anglican who is very fits really well in a reformed ideal, identity. Um, his book, Grace and Conformity, is talking about these um, – Anglican theologians at the time of, uh, you know, like King James and uh, his era or into Charles, um, and it includes Davenant and others, uh, Usher, and uh, he, he runs through a number of profiles explaining who these guys were, what they believed, and it's very important because it's a slice of history that's been largely forgotten. Um, and then Anthony Milton, who I already referenced, he's got a new book as well um, called England's, I think it's called England's Two Reformations. I might have that slightly wrong, but it's something to that effect. Um, and he's talking about the um, time under Cromwell and then when they're restoring uh, both the monarchy and the um, Episcopally governed church. And he's talking about Anglican identity during that time. And so that's a really interesting book as well. I'd recommend that, Anthony Milton. So Stephen Hampton, Anthony Milton, check them out. Really, really excellent, important works. That's great. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, Reese. I um, have been, uh, I've been bad. It's Lent and, you know, I've, I've, um, it's okay. You need a dour Lenten well, discipline. Yes, I have sinned. I've yeah, been led back to, to a, you know, a 
a tr- cracked and dry cistern uh, and have read some Foucault this week. Um, and I'm just really, I'm really glad to Ugh. get it off my chest um, <laughs> and share that with you, brothers. Ooh. I actually don't dislike. I, I love reading Foucault. Foucault. We have a, like, we have a, we have a priest on the podcast who can forgive you <laughs> right now. We can absolve, <laughs> declare it. Yes, um, it. Yeah. I, I, I've been, I've been writing my essay for Joe Minnick's class, philosophy for theology, one of our Davenant Hall classes, and um, <clears throat> it's all about Thomism. And I'm writing about language, and I went back and read Foucault's discourse on language, um, where he kind of co- coins the famous phrase "desire and power," which was the name of a module I took at university to overview basically like 500 years of literature. And yeah, it's like, oh, th- this is the thing, guys. This is how how you understand everything um, um yeah come come to davenant hall people you too can read Foucault. <laughs> to, to be fair Foucault was not assigned it was my choice of like you know an antithesis and a Although, way to start I mean, my essay i will say Foucault is much better than the Foucauldians like that's you know this is one of those you know he's much many, more interesting many such cases <laughs> many such cases and yeah, he's yeah, much yeah. he's no, much more so, fun to read and didn't we just um, say than than you would think what wasn't our cold open like two oh, weeks ago? Oh, the gospel. leads us yeah, to the gospel yeah. or something. So That's true. Yeah, you can That's see Foucault is on yeah. our minds, everyone. Yeah. All right. Well, Colin, what are you up to? I mm-hmm. am taking a break from my normal uh, reading of ancient Greek stuff, and I'm reading Plutarch's Lives, uh, specifically Theseus. I have a discussion group I'm going to. I'm excited about in a couple of weeks at the Zephyr Institute. Friends of the Davenant Institute. Uh, they're down near Stanford, and. Uh, you know, he's one of the the little Greeks. That's what the Romans called them, the little Greeks. So he's technically living in the empire, but he's writing in Greek. Um, and uh, his lives, it's its a fascinating work where he's doing history, but he says he's not doing history. He's doing biography. And the difference mm. is, and, and biography is sort of like the soul of history. You know, it's like one way of thinking of what uh, Plutarch is up to. As the soul animates the body, so to the lives of these individuals. And he's going to get to the the mm-hmm. essence, you know, of who Theseus was. And he pairs one one ancient Greek and one Roman uh, in each of his in each of his lives. So anyhow, that's, awesome. that's my that's my reading. How about you, Andre? Yeah, that's great. Well, I don't know if I've said this one yet, um, but if so, I'm going to say it again because it's so good. I'm reading Petrarch's Invectives. Don't think you Ooh. mentioned that. Um, we got a Plutarch and a Petrarch. A this Plutarch is... and a Petrarch. But Petrarch, Petrarch's Invectives are and fantastic because. because he's kind of Petrarch is known for like being this really nice. You know, he writes a lot of beautiful letters and like excellent Latin. But the Invectives, he just writes a series of tracts against different types of people throughout the course of his life that are um, instances of this ancient genre of invective. So he's reviving this classical genre. But the first first set of invectives are invectives against a physician. And it's amazing because Petrarch, essentially, um, the Pope takes ill. And he brings in, like, 50 doctors to, like, try to heal him. And Petrarch is like, Pope, that's a bad idea. You want one good doctor, not a bunch of bad doctors. And one of the doctors takes exception to this, and Petrarch essentially just gets into, you know, pardon my language, gets into a pissing match <laughs> with this doctor, and they start <laughs> writing these angry tracts back and forth. So I just wanted to read a couple of a couple of, of of quotes from this because there's one a beautiful defense of the poet, which Colin I think you'd appreciate, and there's also a delightful attack against physicians. Sorry, Dad, um, uh, as as mechanical as you know, not capable of sort of proper liberal liberal education. So I just wanted to read a, a, a couple of different things if you guys will indulge me here. So so here's what he says the poets do, Colin. This is for you. He says, They strive to adorn the truths of the world with beautiful veils. In this way, the truth eludes the ignorant masses, of which you, speaking to the doctor, 
are the very <laughs> dregs. But for perspective, perceptive and diligent readers, it is just as delightful to discover as it is difficult to find. You will see that poets are quite rare. Nature ordains that all precious things are rare. Mm. So that's, that's, um, and then, and then against the physician, he basically, one of the themes he's developing is that a physician is a mechanical, a practitioner of the mechanical arts, not a practitioner of the liberal arts. And so he's sort of, um, insulting one of the, the, the kind of, um, hallmarks of invective is that you insult your opponent in various ways to undermine their credibility as though in a court of law. And so he says, he says this to the physician, um, um, he says, what will happen if mechanics everywhere take up the pen? We're done for. Even cattle and stones will write. All the papyrus of the Nile will not suffice. Twitter. So anyway, Twitter. it's... it's um, <clears throat> twi- yeah, right, right. Um, so it's just been a lot of fun reading it. it he's, he's a uh, brilliant... Honestly, have you rhetorician. done any reflection on the fact that you have like a particular theme of writing that you love? Like, I, I can only imagine this is part of your attraction to Luther, right? So people getting angry. The, so, uh, yes, thank you. I think he was just drawn to that phrase, all the papyrus of the Nile. No, no. But, but no, this is actually something interesting. I mean, I kind of wonder you know luther luther you know uh, there are a lot of debates about how to interpret luther situating him in like the late medieval or or like you know renaissance humanist tradition but i've never read an analysis of luther in the context of the genre of invective which is like a rhetorical you know genre it's like a proper the ancient greeks did it the latins did right. it you know petrick does it the the and so i kind of wonder if in in many of these cases luther should be better understood as participating in this genre of invective where you attempt to undermine your opponent's credibility um rather than as a sort of uniquely kind of pugnacious you know interlocutor it's probably a mixture of both but you got, I, I, you, got you got an essay brewing. i, 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 I did it. once read an essay yeah, we'll about how it. luther's we'll scatological interest his constant reference to poop is um is about him being virile and in an attempt to display his well it's, it's actually so one of the one of the key insults that petrarch levels against the the physician is that he looks at pee all day that's his because the physicians have to analyze <laughs> pee so that's like his you know uh, bodily fluids apparently participated, you know, were, 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 you know, took up a lot of mental space in the invective genre. So anyway, that's, that's what I've been reading. Um, but, uh, well, thank you guys all for that. So let's, let's move to the spotlight. Um, Colin, did you want to do this week's, uh, spotlight for us? Well, I, I think Steven should do it because you were just on their podcast. We were going to, we're going to bromote those, uh, <laughs> those young guns. That the, uh, uh, are running the, the ironic Protestant podcast, yeah. The Protestant uh, Reformed Ironics podcast, good name, right? That's Steve? right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're they're almost the Reformed Ironics, aren't they? The what are they called? The Protestant Ironic or Ironic Protestant? Um, the Ironic Protestant order, podcast. But... Yeah, the Ironic Protestant podcast. Ironic. That's right. I did their. I did. Well, do their, so uh, we all. Show. <clears throat> And it was a different show than this, so you, you know Stephen's going to cover different stuff if you go over there and listen to them. But uh, what, what was the name again? The Reese? ironic just throw it out Protestant there for... podcast, and uh, kind of on much of what we've similar things to what we've done today. I think Stephen was on there talking about the baptismal theology of the sixteen sixty two uh, Book of Common Prayer. Mm-hmm. 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 And Fantastic. but of course, you know they they're biweekly. They've got stuff that they talk about. Um, they're I think you know Davenant listeners would uh, would appreciate them and uh, and. And we appreciate them, and I, I know they appreciate us. So we've had some interactions with them, and we uh, we wish them the best. And we want to tell our listeners that if you haven't seen these guys, you know you can find them on YouTube, you can find them on iTunes, I'm sure you can find them on other platforms, uh, and they're all over Twitter. I mean, these are these, right. these Zoomers, you know. 
What are you going to do with them? They are powerful. <laughs> powerful. All right. Well, with that, um, powerful. T- that's right. Powerful. Well, Twitter, yeah, yeah, some of them are, are quite you know Twitter famous, at least as far as like you know kind of Don't tell people can be in our Don't weird sort of circles that. of the internet. They're uh, gonna they're gonna get a big head now, Lindsay. Well, you know, I mean, they're like in their twenties, right? They probably already have big heads. You know, it's just kind of comes it's with the territory. Yeah, it's because they haven't been working um, out hard enough. <laughs> so with that, if uh, we're going to wrap you. things up here today, if you like what you heard today, uh, please give us a five star review on Apple or Spotify. It helps surface our show when people search for for relevant things, um, and you know, just helps us out a great deal. We really appreciate it. If you don't like what you heard today, Colin. What should they do? If you don't like what you heard today, you should actually uh, quit going to the church that you're currently a member at and go join your local Episcopal church. And I am very clear here. It's not Anglican, Episcopal. And become a member. Get, get you know, nominated into the vestries so that you're helping run things. And then become belligerent that they need to start using Sam Bray's edition of the, you know, original prayer book, Book of Common Prayer. And right as they're getting angry at you, then you can hand them your phone and have them say, could you fill out this uh, review of, of the Ed Fontes podcast? Because they mm-hmm. told me to do this. And they'll be so angry at you, they'll, they'll tell us the truth. That's right. That's right. That's fantastic. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you very much for that. Um, Stephen, thank you again. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, um, Stephen. Good to see you again. Absolutely. Enjoyed it. We are the editors. This is the Ad Fontes podcast. We will see you next week.